0: Desiree Berg and welcome to the 34.
1: Shouting was the theme of the first general election debate in the mayor's race. You know, sometimes there are elections. uh, First from the audience and then from the candidates themselves.
2: I, if people are allowed to be in their own community it is a
3: better way to serve them.
1: All three candidates had one thing in common attack attack attack
3: that his friends and donors have gotten richer while the rest of us continue to struggle. I don't think the People of New York are idiots out there. They know what
4: you're
2: doing, Mr. de Blasio. Let's go back to things that actually happen, not to myths.
1: On the homeless, Mayor de Blasio maintained he's got long term plans to end the crisis.
2: We are in the middle of creating enough housing and preserving enough housing for half a million New Yorkers.
1: But his challengers pounced. What are you talking about keeping them in community? You just announced a plan
4: to pay to go to New Jersey. And all he's going to talk about is 10-year plans on rikers, 10-year plans on homeless shelters. How about a 10-month
1: plan to get your hands around it? The mayor was also faulted for the state of the subways.
3: This man over here says it's not his responsibility. He's the mayor of New York. It is his responsibility. Are you afraid of Governor Cuomo? <laughs> And very
2: comfortable taking on the governor when he's wrong. The
5: solution is a millionaire's tax.
1: There was also a heated exchange about crime. The mayor wants to run around the city and say we are the safest big city in the world. That is not true if you are a woman in this city.
5: What you heard from the assembly member were classic right-wing Republican scare tactics.
3: We just had a anyone child who was who murdered denies in the classroom. Anyone How can you say that?
1: WELL, THE REPUBLICAN Nicole Maliotakis IS MARKETING HERSELF AS A SUCCESSFUL CHILD OF IMMIGRANTS. INDEPENDENT BO Dido IS BILLING HIMSELF AS AN ALTERNATIVE TO THE STATUS QUO. THE QUESTION IS WHETHER EITHER ONE CAN PREVAIL IN A LARGELY DEMOCRATIC CITY. LIVE on THE NEWS ARE MY MARSHA KRAMER, TV 1055.
6: ALL RIGHT, MARSHA, QUITE A SHOW. THANKS VERY MUCH.
0: Today, we're speaking with progressive candidate Adam Baumel, who is running for office in New York, which is an area that includes Staten Island. Welcome, Adam.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So, I actually wanted to ask you about a uh, program that you participated in in 2014, the Veteran Affairs Work Study Program. Tell us a little bit about this program and how it uh, influenced you.
2: Well, I, I'm really happy you brought that up, actually. Um, so this was pretty much the first kind of activity I, I engaged in that was outside of my classes upon coming back to, uh, to school in, uh, in New York, which is why I moved here, actually, in the first place, was to pursue my education with my GI Bill. So uh, this was a great opportunity because I got to work with other veterans. And as you may imagine, someone who serves in the military really wants to Pay a lot more attention to veterans' issues because there's just not nearly enough work being done to serve this community that has done so much service to this country. I wanted to focus on this, so in the process of uh, of working in this uh, in this work study, uh, I was helping students basically get acclimated to classes, uh, helping them get it more involved in the process as far as their VA healthcare. Whether it was just getting enrolled in the system to be able to use the VA. Or even as far as getting them set up with uh, their screening process for VA disability. Uh, so, I mean, you, you might say I was almost like a concierge for the student veterans at my school.
0: That's excellent. So it's almost like you engaged in some mentoring. Um, did that affect you in a way that brought you to this place where you ran, wanted to run for office in your district? Or what were some of the other reasons that motivated the run?
2: Uh, I would say that definitely contributed something, but that wasn't really the big push. Uh, the big push actually came a couple years later, which I believe was actually three years ago when I, I was an intern for the New York State Assembly through through John Jay College again. And um, I, uh, I, I really wanted to work for the veteran's chair, which at the time was um, Michael Benedetto from the Bronx. Upon getting up there, I, I really wanted to do a lot more work with veterans on the state level and see exactly how it worked and the committees and, and the subcommittees, all these different things. I wanted to see really what made you know made it move. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I think not even a month, if I recall, was when and Silver got indicted, and this shook up the entire state. Uh, and it was only a few months later that actually Dean Skelos and Adam Skellos got indicted. Um, two of the three, as they say, men in the room, were basically you know, put on notice. Right. And uh, this is what really, really woke me up. It wasn't like I wasn't interested in politics or wasn't interested in government in general, but this is the real push that made me interested, and not just interested, made me believe this was an, an absolute responsibility of mine to run for office. Mm-hmm. And uh, it made me pay far more attention to our local elected officials, and uh, running for the the seat I'm running for didn't actually become an idea until I had moved to Bay Ridge, which I've lived in the area about two and a half years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been so, I, I had, I wasn't exactly aware of all the things that have been going on in this area because I hadn't lived here. But having moved here for no reason to do with politics, I, I became paying more attention. I, I ran for county committee back in 2016. And uh, I came to realize that at the time I didn't know, a, you know, before the election, but no one was even opposing uh, my opponent in the 2016 election. So to me, that is one of the biggest forces of a democracy. If you don't have choice, it's not democracy. Right. Um, so, and I, as time passed steadily, I, I started seeing that there was no interest in anyone else running against my opponent this year. So it was sort of somewhat to fill a need but also somewhat because I knew the best way I could address the numerous issues that I saw both in Albany and locally was to run for office and to raise the important issues that really matter to constituents in both Brooklyn and the Staten Island side of my district.
0: Right. Um, So you brought up the corruption with uh, Sheldon Silver. I want to backtrack a little bit on that for a second, because... The IDC, which has been a formidable problem in the state of New York for progressive politics, you have a lot of Democrats that basically, uh, just to give the audience a background, had a uh, leadership sharing uh, agreement with the Republicans. So they use this to thwart a lot of progressive uh, legislation in the state. These were Democrats that would purport to be for progressive causes on their websites. They would you know, be pro-union, pro- pro-environment, all of these things when they were campaigning, they would talk about, but then they would table any bill that would be um, helpful in these areas. And um, a lot of that initial IDC group was actually uh, arrested and indicted on corruption charges. Um, and I don't know how many folks know that. So you guys have had a lot of shenanigans with mm-hmm. the IDC and with other forms of corruption in the state. Um did did you see any of that firsthand while you were
2: there? Um, I wouldn't say it was as prevalent in the uh, the circles that I was in because essentially there's a, there's a pretty big I would say not a division necessarily in a negative way, but mm-hmm. when you're dealing with assembly issues, they're not identical to state senate issues. Right. And uh, I was an incurring for an assembly member, so you know we weren't literally we weren't necessarily talking or dealing with as many issues on the senate level. Um, so that I would probably say that's the main reason for that. Um, it's not as if they weren't important, and not as if they shouldn't be treated as you know important issues to talk about and to try to deal with. But um, yeah, it was it was a lot more going on—not uh, more going on, but a lot more focus placed on the assembly and well, the obvious corruption of the speaker. Who I, I mean, I'm certainly <laughs> I'm certainly not trying to make it sound equal because I believe uh, Sheldon Silver had been a speaker for over 20 years.
7: Sheldon Silver fought his corruption charges for the past four weeks in court. Every day he sat next to his lawyers, stone faced and silent. Even when the guilty verdict was read at 4 p.m., Sheldon Silver made no expression and said nothing. It is a stunning fall from power. He was elected to the New York State Assembly in 1976, representing his lower Manhattan district. In 1994, he was named Speaker, one of the so called three men in a room in Albany, who wielded virtually unchecked power. Over what got done in the legislature. He stepped down from Speaker in January of this year when prosecutors charged him with seven counts, including four counts of honest services fraud, two counts of extortion, and one count of money laundering. During the trial, prosecutors called 25 witnesses to prove their case that Silver took bribes and kickbacks in exchange for favorable treatment, including state grants and passing laws, all to benefit a doctor and real estate developers. Silver's defense team. Team called no witnesses and silver declined to take the stand in his own defense as jurors left the courthouse today they said nothing they spent 13 hours deliberating with two jurors asking to be excused throughout the case the judge denied both of their requests and they stayed on to issue the guilty verdict
2: so this was and not to mention the fact that skelos it, it, this, it's, it's the first time in the state of new york's history To have two of the three most powerful people indicted especially in such a short period of time so i mean this really really woke people up uh and i mean when you see how the sausage is made and it's not made in any kind of savory way it's hard to turn it's hard to turn a blind eye and uh It only makes you wonder how much corruption goes on by the states and and goes on federal level as well.
0: A lot of corruption, you know, and and that's a really solid point. Um, There were instances that I noted where the assembly was passing progressive bills, but they would get tabled in the Senate. So they'd never get out of the state Congress. So, yeah, I I hear what you're saying there. Um,
2: Yes. The New York Health Act is one that comes to mind most. I think it's passed four times now.
0: Exactly, exactly. So yeah, they were very successful for a very long time doing this. I'm glad that they've been disbanded now. But it was amazing that they were so successful in all these years that that there was no pushback. It seemed like half the population was just sleeping and not aware of what was going on. Um, On that note, there's the uh, 7176, which is an anti-corruption bill that's, um, I believe, in the uh, state assembly right now. Um, Do you have any knowledge on that bill?
2: I would definitely need to look in a little bit deeper. Um that's all right. I mean, of course I'm I'm against corruption. I mean I, I think that's uh that's not something we have to think twice about. Mm-hmm. Uh but I mean there are certain certainly things that I'm proposing that have I mean, I don't wanna take all the credit, they've been proposed before. Um, but I I believe we should actually have a cap on outside income. E- even though it doesn't work perfectly with Congress, I think a fifteen percent cap on outside income for the assembly and the Senate, well all state legislators. Should be fifteen percent. Um, I mean, and that would avoid issues. Something similar to like what Sheldon Silver was dealing with. He was essentially taking, you know, outside income through his law firm, basically masking bribes. <laughs> so I, I feel like, and again, this doesn't affect everyone equally. Obviously, many legislators in the state of New York uh, originally were were attorneys, and you know, they they have the ability to still practice law because we're not considered a full-time legislature. So, yeah, the, the, the legislature is only in session until, uh, I believe, like May. It's January until May. So the rest of the year, they're not in session. So they're not passing any bills. They're they're doing constituent work, which is certainly something that is very important, very necessary to be done. But, I mean, the speed camera issue right now, it's, it's being held up par- partially because of the fact that we're not a full-time legislature here we don't have one. And I think that's an issue as well. I, I would like to see us becoming a full-time legislature. That way, we could have far more efficiency passing legislation for for voters. Uh, I mean, the people who are paying the salary of these people. So I, I think that'd be very necessary. Absolutely.
0: No, and I think that's an interesting point you're making about being a part-time legislative Body, uh, if they do carry on in their other work and there's a conflict of interest, the um, it does make it more ripe for corruption. I think that's entirely true. So you also have a degree in political science. Um, I do. Who, who is your biggest, uh, from a political philosophy point of view? Who is who is your biggest influencer?
2: Hmm, that's a tough <laughs> question. <laughs> well, I mean, I love Noam Chomsky. It's I hard not to, you know, have a strong appreciation for him.
5: Uh, He said, well, we've learned that uh, there's a new art in the practice of democracy, uh, the art of what he called manufacturing consent. Bernays' term was engineering of consent. And this is very significant uh, because the public uh, should not be participants in the democratic process. They should be spectators, not participants. They are uh, ignorant and meddlesome outsiders, as he put it, and for their own benefit, uh, we, the intelligent minority, the responsible men, uh, must control them. Uh, Bernays' particular significance, uh, th- this had all sorts of influence all over the place, uh, but uh, in the intellectual culture, in political science and so on, but Bernays' particular influence was exactly as you say, in, uh, um, he was one of the founders of the modern public relations industry which grew into a massive industry right at that period had it existed before, but it became very important after, uh, uh, at this time. And its goal was uh, to control attitudes, uh, beliefs, uh, uh, to marginalize people, to induce, uh, to drive them towards what were called uh, the superficial things of life, like uh, fashionable p- consumption.
2: But believe it or not, my, my, I would say my, pro, my strongest influence would probably have to be George Lakoff. Um, so he wrote a book that I would say is almost like my political Bible. It's not even really as political as other books have been, but it's called uh, Don't Think of an Elephant. Uh, and his book is all about framing your message.
1: George Lakoff, thank you for joining me today. First question for you. So what should Democrats be doing or saying right now in this very critical
6: midterm election year? They should say what it means to be a Democrat. And what does it mean to be a Democrat? A number of things. First, it means that as a Democrat, you promote the freedom and well-being of all. Number one. Two, uh, you believe, as Lincoln said, that in a democracy, you have a government of, by, and for the people. And of means what? It means, you know, same people inside and out. By means same life experiences on both sides. But also for the people means you have to take care of the people. You're doing what you would call the common good. In addition, there's a view that started with the beginning of the country, that citizens care about other citizens, work through the the government to provide public resources for everybody, for both private life and private enterprise, because people are in business. And that started from the very beginning, when we had public education, uh, when we had roads and bridges and internet, interstate commerce and uh, laws for, um, you know, uh, for not only protecting people, but also for um, uh, having a court system for, for business uh, and, this is, and a patent office for business. This has been there from the very beginning. And you can't run a business or have a private life without public resources.
1: Now, this sounds very convincing to me. You're pushing on an open door. But uh, why haven't, I mean, have Democrats been saying this? Yeah. I mean, right. your implication is that they haven't.
6: No. The and only, if not, why not? Um, because they don't think deeply about what their values are. They think in terms of issues, issue by issue, policy by policy. They don't think at the level of what it means to be a Democrat what it means to, have, to be a progressive, and what the, what they think the country is about.
2: Um, and this is something the Democratic Party, if I were being critical, and I, I, I am not hesitant to do so, I would say this is where they've really failed. And it's been a long time they have been failing about this. Um, cause, because I do believe they have better ideas, better policy ideas to run on, both on the federal and state level, m- more often than not. And they just fail to get these things done because their messaging is so poor. They run on platitudes and generalities and they're not running on ideas and they have the ideas that could catch on, but they just, they're incapable of doing so because they're so incessantly pushing on facts and facts are important, of course, but facts are not what brings up someone's morality. They're not what strikes you at your core. And, that's why I would say this book is was so important to me because it's it's really opened my eyes to 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 acknowledge the fact that if we pushed ideas in a in a better way, we could get them through. We could get them across. Uh, when you talk about Medicare for all, whether federal or state level, you know these are people's lives hanging in the balance. Do you want your child's life? To come down to something as simple as a Medicare or Medicaid or private insurance telling them, oh no, this is considered an elective surgery. No, you don't care. I mean, anyone who wants, anyone who's against the idea of passing these, they should watch the movie John Q. If they haven't seen it, John, and it, these are things that happen out nowhere. You're not planning for your child to need a new heart, need a new, you know, need a new any kind of organ. So it, it just, it just blows my mind when people can so. Easily just push away the idea and just maintain this system where profit is more important than people's lives.
0: Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, You know, we're now at an area, a junction, where the voting population is sort of not in long step with our legislative elected officials. Uh, You have 70 percent of the country basically saying they want Medicare for all. And we have politicians on both sides of the aisle. The Democrats are definitely um, a section of them are guilty of this, of not supporting Medicare for all because they're taking money from pharmaceutical companies Health insurers, you know, anybody that's in private hospitals that's involved in profiteering in the in the industry. It's really unfortunate. And you're right on the messaging. If the best that they can come up with is fuck Trump, we're in trouble. We should be yeah. we should be pushing for policy for change. And this is where we're going to get votes. There is I think there's a percentage of the population that will identify with that over any of the neoliberal messaging that's um, been pushed over the last 20 years. We have a lot of income inequality in the country, and I don't think um, ignoring that is is to our advantage. And that's what's been happening over the last um, few uh, election and- cycles.
2: And many people don't, either they fail to acknowledge or they almost ignore it on purpose, the fact Mm -hmm. that Trump is a symptom. He's not the cause of these problems. I'm by no means saying Trump is fixing these things. um, But I I mean, I think another problem, and I think this, I don't know how strong of an effect it may have for these midterms or, or the elections in my state, in New York and everything. But I think when you have this messaging of just resist, yeah. It means you're resisting, even if there is one occasion where he does something good and referring, I'm referring to Trump. Right, right. Um, if you resist something good, that's playing partisanship. That's not playing. And I, I mean, I hate to say, it, I don't you're hate right. to say that right. I, I should, I shouldn't say I hate to say it, but we're all American. I, I don't think the vast majority of Republicans are literally out to hurt me. Uh, I mean, I think maybe some are, I just don't know, but you know, it's kind of it's kind of heinous that we're we're playing such a divisive method, uh, message like this where it's like resist 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 and i'm like but what if he proposes a good idea, you're going to resist that too? Well, that's, that's what, what Republicans see. were doing with with Obama.
0: That's right. All right. We have seen that. I mean, I think <laughs> the Jeff Bezos thing is a prime example of what you're discussing here. What Jeff Bezos is doing at Amazon is absolutely grotesque. He, he he treats his employees terribly. He um thwarts any kind of union organizing. But we're supposed to all love Jeff just to own Trump. How does this make sense?
2: I mean, I think people really love the idea of success, and they're literally they're willing to turn a blind eye if they see someone who's successful, and they'll they'll literally look past the the shortcomings. I mean, this could be everyone, anyone, rather. Uh, I mean, I would say this happened a lot with Trump, uh, even before he ever even spoke about running for president. Uh, I mean, the things he did with uh, with those contractors in in uh, Atlantic City.
4: Donald Trump promised to make Atlantic City great again and in the 1980s opened a string of casinos to make it an east coast rival to Las Vegas. The Trump Taj Mahal, he boasted, would become the eighth wonder of the world. But it's decay rather than decadence that greets you now.
2: We are at the center of the Trump Taj Mahal.
4: Local guide Levi Fox runs a Trump tour telling the story of how the billionaire's companies went into bankruptcy here four times.
2: He did never achieve his promises, and it makes me wonder whether he could achieve that for America, although at this point, we all hope that he can.
4: His old casino empire was open with vintage champagne and vintage Trump showmanship. He took Michael Jackson on a guided tour. But the city never did come to rival Las Vegas, and he got out of town seven years ago. Since then, he's taken action to have his name removed from his old casinos, fearing perhaps they'd be seen as monuments of failure. I think he was one of the causes of Atlantic City being the way it is today. From his boardwalk buggy, Freddie Isaac watched his rise and fall. Well, in the beginning he was doing good and then uh, later on, uh, well, will put it like this, if you have four casinos in Atlantic City and now you have none, what does that tell you? So when he says he can make America great again? Uh, I don't think so. Things have gotten so bad here that the state of New Jersey took over the city to save it from bankruptcy. Even the pawn shops aren't doing much business because people here have little left to pawn. Inside, we met a building contractor, Danny McMahon. Trump's years in Atlantic City, he says, offered proof that all that glistens isn't gold.
2: Trump used to run this city. I used to watch him not pay his bills and screw everybody over and pay penny on the dollars and take them to court and I understand that's, you know, businessman aspect of it. But you're screwing the little man.
4: Two years ago we interviewed Donald Trump about Atlantic City and he blamed its decline on local politicians and the fact that he left town.
8: I decided years ago to get out and it was a good decision. But it's also a decision. Very interestingly, it coincides with when Atlantic City started going down. But I still have a warm spot in my heart for Atlantic City because I did great there for a long time.
4: But does Atlantic City still have a warm spot for him?
2: There, there are so many instances
4: where he did the wrong thing
2: and wasn't held accountable for it. And uh, this is this just kind of speaks to that whole he owes so much money. On the projects he did in Atlantic City with the Taj Mahal and other projects, that it literally made no financial sense to put him in jail.
0: Right.
2: That's the reason he didn't get arrested and go to prison is because he owed so much money to these big banks; they didn't want to prosecute him. <laughs> yeah. And this and this this really gets lost in in uh, translation. I I, I'm not I'm not I don't push this as bigger than other issues. I, I mean it's a it's a huge issue. I think. Mm-hmm. corruption of this, of this sense, it screws over working class people. I mean, these contractors who worked for months and months didn't get paid. Right. So why is no one advocating for them? I hear That's,
0: you.
2: I wish more people in both parties actually did. I mean, which kind of yeah. goes into uh, the petition I started uh, regarding charter uh, spectrum. Right. right.
0: I want to actually, actually, let's talk about that for a second, because here's an interesting situation, and I'm not sure that a lot of folks know about it. So the IBEW uh, has been on strike for over 500 days. So over a year now, they've been striking against Charter Communications, Uh, and a lot of the politicians have taken money from Charter Communications, obviously. So you started a petition to have the uh, state elected officials donate all their PAC money directly to Local 3 IBEW, who is the uh, union that's on strike. So tell us a little bit about the petition and what brought you um, to do this, because I think it's a really good move. And you're right, and not enough people are talking about the income inequality in this country, and it is probably the biggest problem we're facing.
2: Oh, absolutely. And again, I, I'm so happy to have an opportunity to talk more about this because it's, again, the the main message of my campaign is working for working class people. Uh, I mean, and certainly there are other issues as well, but this is really strikes at the root of it because the majority of are working class. Um, and it's not just about the amount of income. It's about, you know, your your livelihood, your your ability to maintain your your quality of life for, for your family, for yourself, for your significant other, if you have one, et cetera. So anyhow, I, I have a lot of friends who are in different unions, and I have quite a few actually who are in lo- uh, Local 3, IBEW. Now this strike has been going on since even before I started my campaign. And to be perfectly honest, we, a lot of us thought this would be over with by now. We thought it would have been over with uh, in probably by mid to late last year, but it's been going on since late March of 2017. And, uh, and typically with these strikes, similar to like the CWA, they come to an end within a few months because elected officials typically put a lot more pressure on the corporation to come to the table to, uh, to collectively bargain with them, even if it's to keep things as they were and not asking for a raise, which actually is what Local 3 was doing. They were not seeking a raise. They were looking just to maintain the, the benefits and the salary that they had. But essentially the whole issue started with Spectrum pushing to take away the health care plans and the college pension uh, programs that they were paying for. So they they had already paid into these programs, and they were trying to take these away from the unionists. So these eighteen hundred men and women for Local Three IV have been on strike since late March, basically just asking to asking for charter to maintain this agreement that they had set up to continue this agreement that had been going on, and it's just not being met. And uh, unfortunately, a full year after. Uh, I, I ended up finding out that more than a full year after this strike had started that many, many elected officials in both Democratic and Republican parties had accepted sizable donations from the charter PAC. Um, now, the, way, the reason I came upon this is I was looking at my opponent's uh uh, money that she had accepted. I mean, this is something I feel like all candidates would be doing. You know, you want to see that they don't take any money from like the KKK or eight groups or, you know, things like that, of course. I, I mean, you don't expect to see anything that egregious, but, you know, you, you check anyway. So when I came upon this, I saw that Nicole taking $500, which I, I'm i not trying to say it's that much money, but it's just the, it's the principle of the whole thing. If you're taking money from... Union busters, you clearly are not a friend of organized labor. You can't be. And the uh, the groups that have taken money from them, there are some very, very liberal Democratic clubs that have, like for instance, the Jim Owls Democratic Club took ten thousand dollars from them. Uh, Speaker Hasty, if I recall, took about twenty five thousand dollars, a ten thousand dollar and a fifteen thousand dollar donation to his pack, uh, and. And the proposed uh, state senate majority leader, depending on what happens in the next elections, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, I believe, took thirteen thousand dollars from them. So, is this the kind of example we want to lead? Uh, I mean, I, I saw—I saw the other day she had a very big press conference for organized labor in uh, in Westchester, where where she's a uh, an elected official. And I mean, I, I couldn't resist but post a comment saying. Please do not tag IBW in this press conference because that was one of the things that were tagged, like the hashtag. And I was—it it, just—it blew my mind that they would have the the, the tone deafness to do something like that. Um, and of course, I haven't gotten a response from from Andrew Stewart Cousins' uh, campaign or her office, anything like that. And I've started reaching out to some. Unfortunately, no one has gotten back to me at this point. No, none of the elected officials.
0: I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, obviously, they got caught with the pants down, and they don't want to address it. They just want it to go away. But we see it time and time again. Uh, this is unfortunate. I think the decline of unions in this country is directly tied to the decrease in wages. You know, we had Trump's tax scam bill that was passed. And what we've seen from that is no surprise to myself, but I think a lot of people are still not clear on there's this um, disconnect between profits and wages. They, they, don't, they don't go in lockstep. The, having uh, the, the taxes given back to this corporation isn't going to lead to higher wages. There's the, what will lead to higher wages is the necessity of having to pay workers more. And in the dawn of globalization, uh, that's just not going to happen. So, I
2: yeah,
0: feel, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like we see this increase in right to work laws, which are the are anti-union laws. Um even though they're called right to work, they're they're very much anti-union laws. We've seen these increase across the country, and I know there's a federal um effort now to have a federal right to work law. I mean, if we if we completely succeed in killing unions in this country, it will be a dark day indeed for the working class. So I'm really glad that you're working on this issue. I think it's a very important one.
2: Yeah, this this and this case with Janice is uh, it, it really put a shock to New York as well. Uh, I mean, we're the most unionized state in the country. Uh, I mean, and unions have, se- have certainly suffered quite a bit from from the the blind loyalty that they've paid to a lot of these elected officials. But it, it's we we need to just do do far more to protect them. And uh, and this is really, in my opinion, not just my opinion, in in many uh, like expert economists' opinions, this is the path to being. What would be considered the, the middle class is by having more unionized working class folks. And the, I mean, the numbers are dropping like crazy. Um, and, and this is, this is unfortunate. You're seeing legislation put forth by both Democratic and Republican presidents that would hurt working class people. I mean, I know people have a, uh, have this very fond memory of Obama because of how much they dislike Trump and how much Trump offends them. But well, Obama wanted to fast-track the TPP. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how you defend that. I mean, the TPP, among other horrific things, wanted to make uh, private companies and NGOs have the ability to sue governments just because they lost the profits.
8: I just want to get back to this whole to Shafta, the Southern Hemisphere Asian Free Trade Agreement, also known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP. It will expand and strengthen what are called investor state dispute settlements, ISDS. Now, what the heck is ISDS? It's where a private for profit corporation can sue a country because the country has laws that reduce the profitability of that corporation. Right now, Australia and Ecuador are being sued by Philip Morris because those two countries raised taxes on cigarettes and said you cannot put your your logo on the package, and you got to put a picture of a person whose teeth are falling out because they smoke, you know, or a dead, you know, a, a lung or whatever, um, on the package. And Philip Morris says that's going to diminish our, our profitability. We're going to sue you. Australia and Ecuador are saying no. We want to save the lives of our citizens. You think Philip Morris gives a rat's ass about the lives of anybody?
2: And this could be over anything, over anything.
0: Yeah, the TPP was a very bad trade bill. I agree with you emphatically. I don't understand how um how it is that so many folks on the left are are not clear on that. These these trade bills, NAFTA, TPP, all of these uh, trade bills have been very destructive to labor in this country and also the environment. And then I don't necessarily think that what, you know, I'm using my scare quotes right now, this free trade, because it's really not free trade. It's a handout to the corporate oligarchy. What we really should be looking at is fair trade agreements, meaning that yes. labor is, is taken into consideration when we're making these deals with um, other countries. Uh, and, and that's labor on both sides. I mean, let's be honest. NAFTA has been absolutely as destructive to Mexico as it has been to the United States.
2: Absolutely. And uh, I, I actually believe one of the main reasons Trump was, was able to beat Hillary was because of TPP. I think oh, that I was huge. I agree. Uh, it played in Michigan. It played in, in, in many of those Midwestern states where there's such a strong unionized uh, workforce there and, and exactly. so many factory jobs and things like that. These people, uh, and many of them voted for Obama. People often gloss over That's that right. fact. 13% of Trump's voters uh, voted for Obama.
0: That's right. Well, so, you know, nine percent of registered Democrats voted for Trump. Here's here's the thing that I still can't wrap my head around about that. What what presidential candidate doesn't return to a swing state that you lost your own primary into campaign? Seriously.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I um I love how pe- people just latch on to these excuses, and I, I certainly, by no means, am saying that. There weren't, you know, a pretty substantial amount of people who didn't vote for Hillary because she's a woman, and that I think that's fair to make it a point, but it's not the main point it's to be made. It's not the main point, exactly. Exactly, and I mean, I, you know, and but you could also say the same thing about Obama due to race uh, right. and and due to some of the other things that happened with Obama, but. The thing is, I feel like his campaigns were run far more effectively and efficiently oh, yeah. than Hillary's was. Oh,
7: absolutely!
2: Um, and nice and these people are going to who ran a campaign are going to keep getting high paying cushy jobs as well. This is mm-hmm. this is that revolving door that is what people are so sick about with the uh, the DC establishment. That's right. And uh, they thought, unfortunately, they thought so for the wrong reasons. They thought Trump could address this. In reality, he's he's been no better. He's, made a um, he's been just a puppet for you know the corporations. And mm-hmm. reality, the swamp is the corporations, not the elected officials. The elected mm-hmm. officials are just the puppets for the corporations, for the most part. I mean, with with a few as an exemption to that. But um, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he, he did a brilliant job tricking people. He, he did
0: certainly did. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I mean he made the he made the right statements and appeals. He addressed. The actual issues. Hillary wasn't even wasn't even doing that. Yes, he was lying. Yes, he is a puppet of the plutonomy. These these are all truth statements, but he did. He made the appeals that needed to be made, whether he, um, you know, stands by them is a second question. But I mean, she couldn't even be bothered to return to a swing state in which she lost her own primary. That is just unbearably stupid in my opinion i just don't understand how who in that campaign thought that was a good idea i just i
2: can't well if i recall she was at that time when people thought that was bizarre i believe she was spending time in what was it either arizona or um <laughs> or new mexico exactly. a state that she couldn't really possibly believe she took a chance of winning right,
7: right um which, again I, i'm
2: right, i'm not by any means saying new mexico and arizona the same day i know they're not um but I, I, it just doesn't make any sense that, that you'd be spending sense. time there right. when you have swing states with far more electoral college votes to be had Perception. and you're just not going there. Exactly. And then and what's I think the most embarrassing part is this constant vote shaming, whether people oh either voted for Jill Stein or – and it's completely discounting the fact that you know probably three times as so many people voted for Gary Johnson. <laughs> if, Gary, if Gary Johnson voters all voted for Trump and all Jill Stein voters voted for Hillary, Trump would have won by more.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean it's mind-numbing to me because this is a democracy. Votes have to be earned. And if the candidate is not earning votes, that's on them. Stop blaming the voters. They have they there's no expectation that you can bully somebody to vote for who you want them to vote. This isn't fascism. That's the first thing. And you're right, on that other, it's um A, you can't assume that everybody that voted for Jill Stein would turn around and vote for Hillary if Jill Stein wasn't on the ballot. That's just a bizarre assumption. It is more likely that they would have uh, not voted for president and voted only uh, down ballot. We did see a lot of that going on already, or that they would have written in a candidate or something else. I mean, the assumption, they just, I feel like they're just constantly making excuses instead of actually. Looking at what they did wrong, having some accountability for those things and doing something to correct it for the future. This is the main beef I have with the, uh, the DNC, the DCCC right now, because I feel like they're just tone deaf to the problems that they've made. Although that seems like it's changing. At least we finally um, corrected the super delegate problem. That's a step in the right direction, I think. Um, but even that was an uphill battle.
2: Yeah, I, um, I'm I'm. a little fearful of the way that could still be kind of coerced in some way where they get to choose the establishment candidates they just mm-hmm. want and not uh-huh. that voters want. Uh, for one, I believe you need a majority of the votes of, or of the delegates after the first round. Right. Um, so if you don't have that, like let's just say a candidate had forty-eight percent, and this is not who the establishment wants. Mm-hmm. In the second round, super delegates are now back in play. Yeah. Um, so this is why I mean, I, again, I, I definitely appreciate the fact that they made these measures and uh, of the uh, the commission that had uh, been passed. A lot of good did come from that, mm-hmm. but I really wish I would have seen uh, rank choice voting or something oh, yeah. along those lines oh, yeah, be included yeah. in that, so there would be no need to ever have a second ballot. I, that's why I also support ranked choice voting in my own campaign. It saves people money. Mm-hmm. They're always worried about fiscal responsibility. And you have something you could easily do that would prevent the idea of almost never having a revote ever needed ever again. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, Adam, I think that's a really valid position. I mean, we could even go back and look at the DNC convention that had Henry Wallace and uh, Truman. You know, I mean, look what they did there. Henry Wallace won the first round of voting, but the DNC bosses didn't want a progressive in that position. Uh, And I keep thinking to my, you know, and they changed it. They were able to, you know, configure things around so that Truman got the vote. And I always um, hark back on that moment and think to myself, how different would this country be if Henry Wallace had been the VP instead of Truman at that particular point when FDR passed away? I think we'd be in a much different place now than what we are because Truman was very much a corporatist. That was sort of a turning point.
2: Absolutely. I mean, Truman is essentially the one who ushered in the military industrial complex. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, we even had Republican presidents who I, I would say one of the presidents I look up to most is, uh, is Eisenhower. Ike mm-hmm. uh, because he was, first of all, he was an army general. Mm-hmm. So he knew exactly what, was going on with the military and the DOD just in general, and he warned us of the military-industrial complex. And we didn't listen. We didn't.
3: I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell. This speech did not get very much attention. When a new president is coming to power, as John Kennedy was, the spotlight was not on Dwight Eisenhower.
4: We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions.
3: There was a feeling at the time that this must have been written by some speechwriter who just sneaked into the speech.
4: In the councils of government, we must gar- guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex.
6: Three months ago, uh, we got contacted by a family up in Minnesota saying that we have documents from Malcolm Moose. He was responsible for, in, in part for drafting
3: the military industrial complex speech. These new papers give us written evidence that this was not just some caprice of Eisenhower's or something by some speech writer. You
6: see the evolution of his speech from, from May 1959 to uh,
3: 1961. And he wanted to give this speech for a long time, two years.
4: Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Uh,
2: I mean, we and nowadays we have Democrats voting to increase the budget more than the Pentagon is. So, you know, I I, I try not to get too involved in, like, the federal issues, because, again, I'm a candidate first. I'm not a pundit, you know. but. I do think we need to be having discussion of these issues because we shouldn't be having, I'm not trying to say I'm isolationist. I do believe there is a time and a place for military intervention, but it's nowhere near the amount of time that we've done so, especially in the last five or 10 years, because we've shown such a lack of propensity to do so effectively. We've only made things worse in pretty much every situation Mm -hmm. where we've intervened. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at Gaddafi. Look at uh, Egypt. Look at all these other countries. Look at what we're not doing for Yemen.
0: Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I mean, I can't think of a single war that we fought in the last fifty years that had anything to do with a humanitarian bent. Even though they're always they're always claiming to be for humanitarian issues, they're generally to protect American empire. And by American empire, I mean corporations. We overturned a democratically elected. Iranian government because they were going to nationalize the oil industry and the American corporations couldn't have it. So we literally went in there with the CIA. It's
7: actually been an open secret for decades. But for the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. That is the coup that toppled Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammed. Mossadegh had moved to nationalize oil production in Iran. Well, the US was concerned at the time that that would mean a victory for the Soviets in the Cold War. So shortly after his election, the CIA began to plan his overthrow, teaming up with Britain's MI6.
8: Now, the CIA, we've seen it spelling out its involvement in a series of newly declassified documents. These are the actual documents marked confidential, top secret, eyes only. It's the stuff of crime and mystery and spy novels. This one talks about the security implications of CIA letters of commendation for those who served in that operation, codenamed T.P. Ajax. And this one, dated July 22nd, 1953, almost a month before the coup, it talks about preparing an official American statement to follow a successful coup.
0: Democratically elected regime, I, I put in a new regime. It's crazy, so henceforth, you know i always uh, which is very disturbing for me as an american because why are we putting our um, our men and women in harm's way for reasons uh, such as these i mean is this is this really something that we want our soldiers dying for i i just i just i know very upsetting to me um, absolutely
2: not and plus they come home and they're cutting va budgets the oh the local va hospital yeah. to me the brooklyn va hospital for the last 3 straight years has had a a cut budget. And, um, it, it, and Dan Donovan is my, is my Congressman. Uh, and now I, I mean, I am supporting, uh, Max Rose who's running against him. And Max Rose is a, uh, actually a fellow Jewish, uh, uh, veteran. So I saw Dan Donovan, uh, I believe it was yesterday at the, uh, the Richmond County fair. And he was, re- I guess he was receiving an award or something like that from uh rolling thunder. It's like a biker, like club who does a lot of work for veterans. Now. I guess they're either unaware or they're turning a blind eye to the fact that Dan Donovan has, th- for three straight years, failed to advocate for the VA budget of our own Brooklyn VA hospital. So, and, and, the, and the population of veterans of all the boroughs is the highest in Staten Island. We have the highest veteran, um, not budget, but uh, population, excuse me. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Money and people are not the same thing. Um, <laughs>
0: Don't tell that to Mitt Romney. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a little uh, a Freudian flip there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, it's just amazing to me. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've asked this question numerous times. Why have you been ineffective as far as maintaining this budget, especially having a president who's from New York who claims to be pro military and pro veteran uh, being Trump? And repeatedly, this is being cut. We have mm-hmm. veterans who are in their 90s, some World War II vets mm-hmm. who are being forced to go all the way to Manhattan from Staten Island just because they can't get certain types of services and diagnostics done in their local Brooklyn VA hospital. And that to me is embarrassing. Yeah. This I mean, we're the wealthiest country in the world and we can't even take care of the people who we're sending over to fight wars yeah. for mostly corporate interests. That's right. So it's, it's it really would all funny. it wouldn't make it it wouldn't make it okay that we're doing all of this, even if we took care of our vets effectively and and appropriately. But the fact that we're not makes it far worse.
0: I agree. I agree. It's disgusting how poorly our veterans are treated. And you're right. The You know, why isn't some of this large increase that we just, you know, had in the military budget, defense budget, why doesn't some of that get placed into the medical care for the VA? And I don't understand why they cut that and increase the... I mean, I do understand. Obviously, there's profiteering going on. And, you know, it brings me back to the Clinton campaign. Hillary had uh, what Philip Raines is a... He's an arms dealer, one of her main um, campaign guys. That's what he did for a living. He sold arms like he was a lobbyist. Uh, so it's just so deeply ingrained in our government, whether it's on the right or the left. This is, this is something we need to look at as an American population. We need to clean up our government. We need to clean up the corruption. We need to get money out of politics. And until we do that, we're neither side of the aisles, uh, the constituents, the voters on either side of the aisle are gonna be served properly. I think that's just where we're at as a country.
2: This is absolutely true. And I really think people need to have far more representation that is actually similar to what their own ideas are. Not representation yeah. that's really spoken for by the highest bidder. That's right. And uh it's it's really unfortunate. I mean It's certainly not a perfect system, but the New York City campaign finance system has a six-to-one matching funds uh, program. Mm -hmm. So for every dollar you raise, you get $6 to match that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's by no means perfect. You have to raise a certain amount of money before you could even use it. But I do think it's far better than the system that I'm I'm in that I have to raise money through and that congressional candidates and federal-level candidates have to raise money through as well so i mean either that or something along the lines of what seattle has done mm-hmm. for their for their uh, elections
0: yeah i think publicly funded elections makes a hell of a lot of sense um it completely evens the playing field it gets the corporate money um and the quid pro quo out of politics it's something we should look at at least return back to you know the 1972 laws of uh, the federal Elections Committee laws that we once had that were overturned. Um, the, pre, the precursor for Citizens United was Vallejo. Uh,
9: in response to the Watergate scandal, Congress enacted several amendments to the Federal Election Campaign Act in 1974. First, the amended act capped contributions to federal candidates for elected office at $1,000. Second, it limited personal spending in support of candidates, also known as independent expenditures, to $1,000 per candidate per election. Lastly, the act established the Federal Election Commission to administer and enforce these provisions and set forth a process for appointing its voting members. Under the process, the president pro tempore of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, and the president would each select two members. These members would then be confirmed by both houses of Congress. Several political parties and candidates filed a lawsuit challenging the act's constitutionality. They argued that political contributions and expenditures were forms of political speech, and therefore the limits in the act abridged First Amendment freedoms.
0: Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the Public arts Commission. They recently endorsed you, and I think it's really important um, discussion to have here because it's something that absolutely doesn't get discussed enough. We've defunded a lot of our arts programs from our our schools. And I think um, public arts are really important to us as a society. A lot of people kind of look at the arts and go, eh, why is that important? We need to just have math or science. And, and what's, what does that contribute? And I think it contributes something very important. So um, tell me about who the Public Arts Commission is, how you got their endorsement, and whether or not you have any programs that you would want to in- institute if you were elected.
2: Absolutely. Well, first off, I, I definitely cannot ignore the fact that I've had a lot of influence from my girlfriend. Uh, she's a graduate from SBA. Um, she's been very involved in my campaign, whether it be designing my palm cards, designing other pieces of, uh, of literature that I've put out. She, I mean, I, I it's technically not a real job, but I mean, it's been a real job for my campaign. Uh, she's my creative director uh, of my campaign. Now, I mean, I think it's very important for one that I, I'm not paying these people from out of town who are pretty much just like paid mercenaries to do these jobs for me. It's something that's really had a lot of thought been put into by, you know, something someone local. She lives in the district as well. We live in the same apartment. But um, so anyway, we had looked up the Public Arts Commission and they basically do political advocacy for arts programs. Um, and they do it nationwide. So this is something that's really important to me I, because I do feel that there's a lot that we're not focusing on now when it comes to creativity in schools, um, I feel as if, if if perhaps our students activated that part of their brain more often—the creative part—they would be far, they'd be far more well equipped to uh, to succeed in school. They'd be far better equipped to succeed after school. Um, and I mean, there are jobs in the art industry as well, whether it's painting, photography—I mean, anything like that. Uh, my girlfriend works as a photography editor at uh, T Magazine. So clearly, if this is something you're pursuing and you have a passion for it, you can be successful, even successful enough to not be a starving artist, as they used to call them. And I think it also creates, it's, it's one way that we can represent our, all our own cultures uh, and kind of come together to help understand each other
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And you touched on something that I think is also important. Creative thinking isn't just something that's valuable to the arts industry. It's valuable in general. I mean, if you look at a lot of the, um, even somebody like Albert Einstein, a lot of the breakthroughs that he had came from his creative mind. It wasn't just the science side or the math side of his brain. It was also the creative side and the way he looked at the math and science. So I think. I think it's a really important art is and, and creative thinking is a very important part of our society. And it's something that's been neglected for far too long. So I was happy to see that.
2: Oh, absolutely. And again, this is something that I'm, I'm extremely, I'm extremely proud to say that they've endorsed me because it's something that I, you don't see this very often, them, them getting in, involved in campaigns like this. I think I'm only the second candidate in the state of New York to get their endorsement other than I believe Julia Salazar has okay and um, and this is something that i'm again I'm, I'm extremely proud about, and uh, it's something I really hope I can you know push their message forward and, and make sure students have, have the ability to pursue you know something in with their creativity and I think this even if they don't pursue that as far as a career, it's something I do believe would benefit every child growing up as yeah. far as developmental skills and, and and many other skills as well.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. So let's talk about your district for a second. Staten Island has a massive opioid problem. I think you've had what a sixty-six percent increase in overdoses since twenty fifteen. So this is this is a substantial issue that we're looking at. Um, what? How do you see this problem, and what plans do you have for uh, tackling this um, epidemic?
2: All right. So for one, I am am a major advocate of making. Not only the uh, emergency personnel, meaning firefighters, EMT, police, uh, both equipped and trained to deal with Narcan, I'm in favor of people having this as well, and as long as they do the proper training and uh, and can get that as well. Because we can't always rely on on emergency personnel getting to the scene soon enough. So, for instance, I am very much interested in myself getting that same training. If I were to see someone who's overdosing, whether... I mean, anywhere, in the supermarket, on the sidewalk, anywhere. I think we should all be far more um, interested in helping out fellow citizens, uh, or not just fellow citizens, fellow members of the community like that. Uh, So that's one thing I think would be necessary, making sure Narcan is far more readily available and training is far more readily available for our community members. But uh, I also, this is something that I think is far more direct, would address it as well, is the availability of adult-use cannabis. Um, it's a far better means of treating a lot of these symptoms with pain than taking opioids. And, uh, and it's, and it's not based on age or anything like that. I mean, there were, there was a study done. I I, I don't have the exact numbers on me. There's a study done of Holocaust survivors. So these are all senior citizens, you know, maybe in their eighties and nineties, I think it was done about 10 years ago where they allowed them to use, uh, cannabis instead of opioids and other kinds of, uh, pain medication and their results were startling how much better they didn't have all the side effects they had a lot less trouble sleeping it's and i mean the same kind of symptoms can be going on with uh, a lot of this and dealing with PTSD as well
0: that's that's actually an interesting point you're making i am fully behind legalizing uh marijuana and have been for years I'm also behind the movement to treat drug addiction as a public health and not a criminal issue. I think,
2: um, absolutely. Yeah.
0: You know, but it's interesting that you bring that up because I think there's money involved on both sides of the things. First, you have the money on the pharmaceutical side. Obviously the big pharma has money to be made by pushing drugs like fentanyl, which, you know, this is a drug that was initially created to treat pain that was associated with late stage cancer. Yet you have all of these, um, doctors prescribing it for just about anything and it's highly addictive. And it's
2: absolutely guess right? 100 times stronger than morphine.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to and me. And it's 100
2: times stronger. Yeah. And this is actually where a lot of these, uh, this recent uh, past couple of years of drug overdose that taken place with heroin. Now, I'm not in favor of anyone using heroin, but when you buy heroin, it's typically because you're not able to get the opioids anymore through the legal yeah, means. That's right. Um, I believe over, over half the people who end up going towards heroin are, are through that, mm-hmm. uh, if I recall. So yeah, another yeah. thing is it's being laced with fentanyl. That's right. Um, and I'm not even sure how that makes the drug dealers more money to be perfectly honest, even if you're thinking about the logic behind it, but they're doing so anyway. And this is what's really killing people because it's, it's again, it's so much more potent than mm-hmm. than what is going into the heroin to begin with, yeah. So this is what killing so many people, um, and this needs to be addressed both directly and indirectly.
0: Yeah, and you know, so exactly. And then on the flip side, with cannabis, um, the big two groups that have fought against the legalization of marijuana are the alcohol. Industry, for obvious reasons, they don't. They think if they legalize marijuana, they'll sell less alcohol. So they've been behind the scenes giving money to candidates to lobby against um, uh, legalization there. And then, of course, the other big push is, has been the more moralistic group that thinks it's you know it's a drug, so it should be illegal. Which I think is a separate conversation. But really, if you look at it, you've got moneyed interests fighting both sides of this equation, which doesn't suit the. Uh, The majority of the population in this country, it's not serving their needs. It's, again, serving corporate interest needs, placing money over people. So hopefully we're going to make some progress in this area. Obviously, uh, legalizing marijuana has really taken a turn. I think most... most folks now look at that as a normal thing and they think well schedule C narcotic obviously it's not why were we told for so many years that it was this scary you know gateway drug and we're starting to have folks actually do research on medicinal purposes so that's obviously um changing but i'm a little bit concerned like you said about you know the op- the opioid epidemic a lot of it is due to um the medical industry being told that these these narcotics were perfectly safe that they weren't addictive and both of those things were absolutely false we know that now but i don't see any big pharma companies um uh, getting punished for this
2: no absolutely absolutely and it's it's really an issue it's it really puts into thought the uh the idea of motive yeah. when you're dealing with this because in reality it's it's all about making money and and i hate to say it like we all we've all had family members who've dealt with pain there are ways of dealing with it better than taking opioids unless it's again like late-stage cancer uh and and then even that goes even more so with fentanyl um so i mean i if if it were if i had control over the system if i were you know like a good dictator i'm not but if i had full control. What I would do is I would have cannabis as the primary means of treating pain, Yeah. unless that pain is considerably more than, than can be dealt with through mm-hmm. cannabis. But, I mean, there's all different types of potency as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I feel like there's so much research that can be done with cannabis. I think they're even finding ways that it can treat uh, diseases that are far more serious. Yeah. Through cannabis,
0: that's right. Um, in fact, there's a group that's doing some research um, where they've had success with seas- with seizures uh, in children. You know, there's a way to t- you can take the part that makes you stoned out of the marijuana, and you end up with the other parts. You know, yes, yeah, I- cdb oil. Right. So I had some of that a yeah. couple months ago. I had broke my toe, and it was really painful. And I was given that. I have to tell you, it was insanely effective at killing the pain. It was fabulous. I would absolutely take it again.
2: Yes, yeah, so I was going to say, my, um, in our apartment, we actually have a CDB pen. Where, so there's no THC in it, right. but it has all the, uh, the, more, the, the more medical aspects and the more uh, treatment aspects of the cannabis, which is a CDB. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's occasional. I wouldn't say it's something I engage in frequently, but it's something I do. You, you might imagine there's, uh, there's definitely those stressful days yeah. uh, coming home, whether campaigning or from my, from my, from my job as a, uh, an FHB driver. And it definitely helps to, you know, maybe cope with some of those stresses involved. And I, I think people should be far more open-minded to things like this because it doesn't get you high. There's no high feeling. It's just more of a therapeutic feeling and, and a relaxation. And it yeah. definitely helps you sleep as well, which a lot of us have trouble sleeping too. So
0: yeah, I think it's yeah, probably safer than alcohol. let I mean to be fair.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could you can the overdose of alcohol is uh, drug po- alcohol poisoning basically. Right. And uh, I mean, we've all had those mornings where you wake up at all. I mean, those of us who drink have had those mornings where you wake up and you're hung over <laughs> or whatever. And in some cases, that's an acute form of alcohol poisoning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, there are many celebrities, musicians, people who have far more access to health care than we do, who have died from the overconsumption of alcohol. That's so right. it's I mean, if if cannabis could kill you. Snoop Dogg would not be alive anymore. We've it's, you, no human being smokes as much as that man does, and he's still alive, and he seems to still be have you know still have control of his cognitive abilities as well. So I mean, I'm definitely not for you know people who are too young to be smoking I, while your brain is still developing. So I mean, I do think that 21 and up is a good age to be you know having the regulation and the law to set as. Mm-hmm. And um, and and there's there's issues even beyond this. It's personal freedom. So any liber- this is why libertarians love the idea of legalization of cannabis as well. Mm-hmm. And an economic issue. It create jobs like crazy. It would create a lot of other jobs even Tax outside revenue. the industry, whether it's in research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, across the board, this I, I don't see much negative aspect whatsoever in legalization of uh, adult use cannabis.
0: Yeah, I don't either. I agree with you. So hopefully we'll see that um relatively soon. I think it'll um, hi- I think it was going to hit the state level magnitude where it has to be dealt by with by the uh, federal government at some point soon. So let's talk about Yeah, it should
2: not be a local one. Yeah. Right or our schedule one schedule one not
0: schedule local one schedule one yes <laughs> right No, i totally understood um so let's talk about the incumbent that you are running against in the district called maliotakis uh, let's talk about her for a second speaking of the drug situation she has been railing against uh the new york city health commission um, gave some testimony recently on establishing injection sites. Now we're talking about dealing with the opioid crisis again.
9: Blasio is pushing for New York City to become the first U.S. city to have safe injection sites for illegal drug users. Right now, there are no sites in the U.S. They would violate federal law by providing a place to use controlled substances. Now, the supervised injection sites have been successful in helping lower the number of overdoses in Canada and various European countries. There were more than 1,400 overdose deaths in New York City last year um
0: you know and this is something i think that this needs to be mentioned this is something that's been tried in other countries and it's been quite successful what in in countries where they've done this you don't have an increase in heroin addiction you have a decrease generally and it's also safer you have um, lower rates of disease transmission like hiv because the folks have clean needles but the way she was talking about it um She's ignoring all this data and she's turning it in sort of this moral argument that how could we be so horribly immoral to think that opening up these state uh, or these health uh, um, health commission uh, injection sites would be a good idea. Have you followed any of this?
2: Uh, I've definitely followed a bit of it. I haven't actually put out any kind of policy regarding, uh, like support or, or opposition to it, Mm -hmm. but on the general basis, I, I actually don't have a problem with these opening up. And I mean, I, I definitely think there should be some kind of regulation as far as where Mm -hmm. I I probably wouldn't want one opening up next to a school or, you know, certain areas like that, of course.
0: Right. I think that's reasonable. I mean, yeah, I mean, the vast, the vast
2: majority of people are not, Going to see like a, a safe injection site and be like, "Oh, this is a reason now I should start. I should start using heroin." Um, right. It's just not it's logical. Not, happen. Um, it's not logical. No. It's, yeah. I mean, I hate to to make a uh, similarity or an, or a uh, an equal, you know equal uh, type of idea, but this is kind of similar to the argument people used to make when it came to contraceptives being at colleges. That's right. Um, that we're pushing our college students to have sex just uncontrollably. And in reality, what we're trying to do is push people, if they're going to have sex, to do it safely. We at least want you to do so safely. That's right. You know, not, not in a, uh, an environment where you could hurt someone else, hurt yourself more so than what you're already doing through the, the use of drugs to begin with. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see this as any kind of means of increasing the amount of drug use in the state. Um, yeah, that's exactly because most it. people if they want to use if they want to use drugs they're doing so anyway they're not concerned with the legality of it
0: mm-hmm. no you're right they're going to do you're right someone that's already addicted to heroin is going to shoot up whether it's legal or not so i think we have an obligation to look at the ways of at least um doing less harm in those environments and you know you you have to think about the crime that surrounds heroin use it's not just The junkies that we're talking about. We're talking about the folks that are um, being stolen from to pay for the drugs. We're talking about, you know, maybe somebody accidentally touching a needle that might have HIV virus. Like there's all kinds of things going on. So if we have a way to make this safer and better for the society, we should probably look at that. You know, and one of the things she sounds off about is that she thinks that we should be having recovery programs instead, but nobody's saying that we should do one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive. We're saying we should Absol- do both.
2: Absolutely. And, I, and I'm actually happy you brought up the, uh, what you said just before about uh, needles accidentally pricking someone. Mm-hmm. So my girlfriend's uh, cousin uh, about a week ago was in a Target in New Jersey, and uh, th- this is, this literally, I found out about this just a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, she went to the changing room and she ended up getting poked with a hypodermic needle. Oh my God. So she's in a position now where, and she's already gone through like the testing, but it, it could be up to six months until yeah. some of these That's right. uh, diseases could, could show themselves. So we're still waiting on, I mean, it's going to be another five and a half months or so until she finds out if she ends up getting some kind of disease. I mean, I, am obviously hoping that nothing bad has happened, wow. but I mean, this is absolutely horrible. And, and I hate, I mean, this is something that maybe wouldn't have happened if mm-hmm. there were a safe injection site, that's you right. know?
0: No, that's right. That is, um, that is one of the issues and, and folks accidentally getting pricked by these needles isn't that rare of an occasion. So we hear these stories. No. So anyway, I thought it was an interesting idea. And just listening to Nicole talk about it, she seemed completely out of touch and unclear on the issue.
2: Well, I, I would say that's been the case with other issues as well. So I, I'm not, I'm definitely not, uh, I, I wouldn't be one of those people who's surprised by, uh, by the idea that she's out of touch or tone deaf, as I would put it, mm-hmm. on numerous issues, especially those in the district as well.
0: Right. So now she's a woman, and I know she's also repeatedly cited against a woman's right to choose, which is mind-numbing <laughs> to me. Um, what Do you have thoughts on uh, on Roe v. Wade versus your opinion and her opinion?
2: Absolutely. So my belief, I definitely am not one of those people who would say they agree with Hillary Clinton on, on that many issues. But one where I absolutely do agree with her is when she said, uh, I believe abortion should be three things, safe, legal and rare. Now, the reason I do believe that is because I don't think the vast majority of people who end up getting an abortion in their lifetime are you know, happy to have gotten one or even happy they were in the position to get one. But I do think it's an absolute necessity that they need to be accessible for people if if they do feel they're in a position that they need to get an abortion. But to say anyone is happy to get one or anything like that, I think it's I think it's going too far. Um, now, actually, another endorsement I have received is from the NIRH, which is the National Institute for Reproductive Health, and uh, and this is because I've I've devoted myself to to work towards codifying our state constitution. Our state law, rather, for Roe v. Wade, because New York actually is one of the states that passed uh, reproductive rights legislation before Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. So it's it's a very scary process because mainly, the, you know, everyone is right now talking about the uh, the uh, the Kavanaugh, uh, what's going on today, actually, uh, right, right. and the biggest issue that people are talking about, yeah, with the hearings is you know whether he would look to get rid of Roe v. Wade or not, and the, One of the biggest reasons why codifying it in our state is so important is because if it is not codified and Kavanaugh were to and and the rest of the Supreme Court were to get weighed, that would cease to exist the way the way we know it. But if it were codified on the state level, we'd still have those protections in place. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so incredibly important.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think you make a valum a valid point uh, in regards to abortion. And I often find the same folks arguing against a woman's right to choose are the same folks that also don't want to uh, support things like Plan B, or they think it's wrong or to uh, distribute condoms in schools, etc. So it's, to me, this is just an irrational onslaught against um, human beings, because they're coming from a place of morality. They think they're being morality, you know, like you can't have premarital sex, which is just completely asinine and stupid. It's not really looking at the human population in a realistic manner. Kids are going to have sex. Humans are going to have sex. It's a normal, healthy thing, it's not an immoral thing. But I think, you know, a lot of our puritanical background in this country sort of has interwoven itself into a lot of the um, beliefs in this area. So, I think you're right. I think you know, I, we should have condoms in school. We should have plan B readily available. But if it comes to a point where a woman needs an abortion, she should have absolute access to one.
2: I completely agree. And, and to be perfectly honest, I think when it comes to abortion, it should be between a woman and her doctor. That's
0: right. Um, another area that Nicole kind of um, had a meltdown over was Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez winning um, her primary. <laughs> um, what yes. are your thoughts on that? <laughs>
2: Well, for one, I've been contacted by numerous Nicole supporters. Um, in some cases, I would even say, as far as sycophants, um, to basically justify whether I am against Antifa, whether I am either for or against Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and I mean, it's it's it takes away from the idea of a race we're running where I'm pushing. I have a full slate of ideas that I'm pushing for this race, issues that are very important to the area and and important to the state. And this is how we, we draw distractions in these races, which is so unfortunate. But I mean, as far as the AOC is concerned, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, I think there's a lot of things she's pushing for, which are great ideas. She's pushing for the, uh, the making sure that we actually respect organized labor, pushing for Medicare for all on the federal level, which I'm pushing for on the state level. Um, but, I mean, it's it's just such a distraction when people ask me, like, are you a socialist? Are you supportive of this person? I'm like, I support most of her ideas. I don't need to apply this label. It's just not necessary. Um, I think we should have more nuanced discussions. But I understand it takes more time and takes more energy and more concentration. But this is how we actually get things done, not by just applying labels that are just a means of being lazy when it comes to discussion and conversation.
0: I agree with that. The unfortunate reality is Americans also don't have a deep understanding of what these words actually mean. They've, uh, you know, no. the word socialism has been so deeply weaponized in this country that it doesn't even, uh, you know, when people say they don't, they don't know what socialist is and they think it's this bad boogeyman. And, and it always blows my mind when somebody goes, what I call absurdo de Venezuela, because <laughs> It's
2: like, no. Oh, it's, it's an absolute, <laughs> it's well, an it absolute a totalita- joke. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's a joke. But Venezuela well as a totalitarian government, it's not democratic. Uh, you know, the the biggest problem they face is the government and corporations like completely raping the country. So, I mean, it's like, no, why don't you look at, like, Sweden? That's a better example, but they don't want to look at Sweden because it doesn't fit their uh, antecedent bias of what they think this word is supposed to mean.
2: You know how there's the DSA, which they, I think they just had uh, 50,000 registered members. There's a difference between democratic socialism and social democrat. So, like, for instance, um, And the main difference is the fact that um, you know one side basically believes in a post-capitalistic system, Mm -hmm. and one side believes in kind of like a hybrid system where capitalism and socialism kind of very much what we already have. Right. Uh, I mean, our roads are were paved mostly by government. Our 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 police, firefighters, sanitation, you know, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, Mm -hmm. all these things which I'm not buying anything or any of them are perfect. Exactly, public schools. I mean, so many of these programs are popular, especially Social Security. Mm -hmm. It'd be even more popular if the government kept draining money out of it to pay for other things. But it's it's
0: it's it's just managing that. No, you're right. These are all forms of social. And the definition of socialism, and it's in its very simplistic form, is it's this is something we all collectively. Pay into, and it doesn't even have to be the government doing distribution, it could be the democracy itself. I mean, and then there's you know, there's anarcho socialism, there's social libertarianism, there's you know, there's various um, schools of thought on this, but yeah,
2: you can even go as far to say as like joining any of these clubs, like the Kiwanis Club or right. you know, Masons, if they had a so, membership right yes, so. yeah. That's socialism. <laughs> exactly.
0: Anyway, yeah, you get so, it. But a lot of people, you know, they've had this word so weaponized that, you know, and, and part of it, uh, part of it did stem from the healthcare care uh, lobbyists, health insurer lobbyists. They were very successful in, you know, in the early 1970s when the HMO bill was initially passed. They went into this whole propaganda spin zone where we're going to say socialized medicine, meaning this is something you don't want because it's like attached to some sort of communistic red boogeyman thought and you'll have no freedom and the government will take away your right to choose you know so they were very successful in in spreading that sort of propaganda unfortunately and you know flash forward here we are in 2018 and we're still sort of trying to um, erase all of that mentality and correct the beliefs here but but I find that, um, you know, even FDR, when he was looking to pass Social Security and a lot of the programs that he passed, he intentionally used the word liberal instead of socialism because he was worried of that very thing. And if you look at the – here's another uh, misconceived notion. The definition of liberal is laissez-faire economics and small government. It's the exact opposite of what Americans think it is. At the end of the day, yeah, that's so.
2: classic. Yeah, classic liberalism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Anyway, it's an interesting conversation <laughs> to have. So I, I think it's, you're right. There's, there's definitely a benefit to focusing more on the policy and less on the labels.
2: Absolutely, and I mean just to go, just to say one more thing on the issue. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'd hate to draw on just about one thing when there's so many different points to talk about. But um, you know, I love when people also make the straw man argument to say national socialist, as, you know, as a Nazi, <sighs> They say like, oh, uh, it didn't yeah, work so well yeah. for them. Yep. And then I say, you know, if you think that's a real thing, do you think the, the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea is a Democratic People's Republic? The DPRK. Um, exactly they're not right. democratic. No. They're not a republic. And they're not for the people. They're, they're none right. of those things.
0: And, or Congo. I mean, the Democratic just, Republic of Congo is another great example. Exactly. Just because it's in the name doesn't mean it, it's what it is. And I, that drives me that shit yes the nazis I can, call a a monster. Right?
2: I can call myself a spaghetti monster it doesn't mean i am one
0: <laughs> right 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 yeah no i, I that and i don't know where that came from i mean how is it even up for debate that they're fascists and now all of a sudden in the last three or four years there's been this entire conversation going on on the in the alt-right saying that no they're leftists because they're socialists and it's just mind numbing to me it's like what are you smoking
2: in fact, they were against <laughs> hardcore leftism, which I mean, I that's guess right. if you think they about the rest of
0: communists com- and the socialists, the exactly. first folks that they the Nazis went after, were the communists and the socialists. That's that's just a historical fact. And you know, yeah. we get into this con- a conversation about Antifa, because there's another thing, I, I a lot of these folks don't realize that Antifa's roots it started in 1930s Germany. They and and in Italy, they were fighting Mussolini, they were fighting Hitler. Antifa was the was the boots on the ground. Uh, anti-fascist movement that was fighting these folks, and and a lot of the, a lot of the alt-right doesn't seem to know that, which is just I don't know bizarre. So your district sixty-four, um, I wanted to talk about the breakdown of that a little bit. It's because it seems to me that it's more of a working-class district than it is a conservative district. Yet here you have uh, a Republican in office who's office who is an incumbent was not challenged in 2016 why is this the case because it seems to me that there are plenty of folks that live in staten island per se and and brooklyn that would be very responsive to a bernie sanders uh style uh policy and populist viewpoint
2: well i, I absolutely agree so and that's partially why i'm running i mean no one wants to run knowing that they're absolutely going to lose, first of all. I mean, I, I love how people say, well, do you think you have a chance? I'm like, well, of course I think I have a chance. That's why I'm running. Um, but also, I, I do feel the Democratic candidates in the past just have not run the right way. I, I am firmly against the idea of running a republican light candidate against a Republican. Because when people have the opportunity of choosing a Republican and republican light, they'll typically choose the full Republican. And they're also running on these wedge issues as well. Uh, It's just like, I'm a Democrat, I'm better, you should vote for me. And I think that's a horrible means of messaging as well. I believe in messaging based on populist economic policy, meaning fighting for better transportation, fighting for better working conditions for organized labor and those who are not organized labor, Uh, making sure schools are properly funded, which they're not at this point, making sure senior citizens have health care that takes care of them and not and you know makes them able to survive on their on their limited incomes these are all issues that affect people's wallets and affect people's livelihood and their quality of life and these are the things that people won't show up to vote for and right. i mean don't even get me started on uh, on the tax addition with uh, in regard to property taxes our property tax system in new york is decades out of date decades and uh, i hate to say it i mean neither party has done a meaningful job of effect of uh, uh, pushing for change
0: on this. No, you know that's a really valid point. When you run a Republican against a Republican, the Republican wins And, and Especially, I would imagine in the and you know the state of New York, you have a you know obviously Wall Street's there, so you have a lot of financial industry folks in the state, not necessarily in District sixty four. But it seems to me that they're the ones that have been catered to, um, time and time again, with a lot of these neoliberal corporate Democrats that have run for office. And effectively, I think you're right. If that's who you're running in a predominantly working class neighborhood, they're not going to win.
2: Absolutely, I completely agree. And I mean, there are things that I'm that I'm pushing that that give people in this community and in these uh, in both sides of the district far more access to me in the event I were to win. I mean. Right. Just something off the top of my head from from my reform slate is that I'm going to have a minimum of two town halls every single year, yes. one in Brooklyn and one in Staten Island. This is something that's extremely unheard of uh, in any in any part of New York. I think people should know how I am spending your money. You have every right to know that.
0: Uh, again, this is the plutonomy serving the plutonomy. I think a lot of the time, this transcends this idea that it's right versus left. It's it's a one percent versus everybody else sort of issue. And I think, um, and I think a a message that sort of transcends that viewpoint, meaning that I'm here to work on your behalf because you're a working class individual. I'm not a bankster. I'm not supporting banksters. I'm supporting unions. I'm supporting. Uh, the idea that you should know where government is spending your money, that you should know that this corporation has given money to this candidate for quid pro quo reasons. You know, all of that transparency stuff translates I think into votes uh, much more readily than, than um, running a Republican light candidate does. So I think you're right on that. Um, I think you've got a chance to pull this through, which is great. So um, what other issues are you working on or are, what other issues are important to you that we haven't quite discussed yet?
2: So, Here's one, actually. Uh, I volunteered and I'm very proud to have volunteered last year with uh, with uh, City Councilman Justin Brennan.
3: Hi, I'm Justin Brennan. I was born and raised here in Bay Ridge and I'm running for City Council. I never planned on running for office. I was actually in an underground band and spent 10 years touring all over the world. But after every tour, I always came home to Bay Ridge. And once I left that life on the road, I got married. My wife and I opened a small business, the art room right on 3rd Avenue. And I started volunteering in the community I grew up. I joined Community Board 10 and Bravo, and I co-founded Bay Ridge Cares after Hurricane Sandy. And eventually, I started doing constituent service work for Councilman Gentilly. So why am I running? Because here in Brooklyn, we all know the expression, I got a guy. The one person who knows who to talk to to get things done. And working for Councilman Gentile, I took care of problems, some big, some small. But when people need help, they need help. And eventually, one of my friends said to me, Justin, you know when people say, I got a guy? Well, you're that guy. Well, What an amazing compliment. But that's why I'm running for city council. No one can fix every problem. But if you want a council member who will always be there to help you deal with city government, who will fight for our schools, our seniors, who will get more cops on the street, who will bring our neighborhood together even while we get more diverse, someone who will will always be your guy to get things done, then I would be honored to have your support on the Democratic primary on September 12th.
2: The expansion of the Harbor Ring plan. And now what this would effectively do is it would connect Staten Island to the rest of the city. Because at this point, the only way to get across is through either public transportation, whether it's by the ferry or a bus, or to drive across yourself and pay that ridiculously absorbent toll. So if we were to build this path on the sides of the Verrazano Bridge, I believe this could really help both small businesses in both Staten Island and Brooklyn and it could increase the amount of uh, traffic without increasing the amount of car traffic as well. I believe we should be pushing for ultralight rail in Staten Island. Uh, It's still, to some degree, uh, proposed ideas and has not been carried out, but there's a lot of uh, technology we have access to that could reasonably do this. And if I recall, it got one twentieth the cost per meter of track that it would be compared to light rail or some type of monorail system.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting um, idea. What, so how would the light rail be set up?
2: The cars could go up to around 200 miles an hour. They could be going up or down on, on a grade of 12%, which there's nowhere that high of a grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also could be used as an opportunity for a lot of union high-paying jobs to be building these tracks and building these cars. Right. A so program
0: on the island itself then not necessarily to replace the ferry or some other things.
2: No, I mean, I definitely think, think we should also be pushing for more ferry access as well. Not okay. just the ferry that leaves from the North shore. We need, we should have a foot ferry to the South shore. Okay. And I, I would like one on the West and the East shores as well, which do not, they're not in my district, but again, I'm not, I'm not running just to work for those in my district. I'm, I'm looking to work for those in New York State. Mm-hmm. So if I can improve something outside of my district as well, especially in Staten Island, an area that really could use these uh, these investments, then I, I think it's an absolute great opportunity to move forward with.
0: hmm Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I, yeah, I'd like to see more light rail across the board everywhere. I think, you know, for example, it comes to mind that, you know, you have so many people going between uh, Las Vegas and Los Angeles all the time on the 10 freeway, and there's a lot of accidents, etc. But why isn't there a light rail system that ties these two cities together? You know, and plus, it's got an environmental benefit to um to it as well because you have less cars on there less congestion less pollution so yeah that's an interesting thought i'd like to see i'd like to see more light rail in the country
2: absolutely and this is and this program the best part is that you could easily make a case that it could be a, a split funding source through both city state and federal governments right because if this pilot program works out well they could look to do this I mean, all over the country. Uh, I believe there are currently plans to try to set something up from Philly to New York City or from Philly to DC. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of those two. I I forgot exactly which, but I think these are great ideas. I mean, what they're doing in in certain Asian countries, like with the bullet train, is is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it makes transportation far more equitable for people who need to rely on it to get to work, especially.
0: Yeah, I, that's absolutely true. Um now it, Adam if folks want to uh donate to your campaign, where's the best place for them to do that?
2: Well, they can definitely, definitely get to my uh donation source through my website. Okay. Which to get there you'd be going to dot com. Now, uh, I understand my name can be hard to spell, so I will spell it out as well. Uh <laughs> it's B A U M E L for64.com now it's not just for donations I also have my issues there I also talk about you know what myself and what got me to this point point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also been translated into Spanish as well
0: Oh bravo that's smart um, I will put go ahead and put the links um, for folks to be able to click through in your bio and also what's your Twitter handle
2: Ballmel for 64 uh, which is the same thing with uh, with Instagram. Actually.